On this jam-packed catch-up edition of Reporter's Corner, I talked to Andy Bueller, the Bulletin Editor-in-Chief, to chat about the five things you missed most since we last recorded this podcast. I also sit down with Eden Lossie to talk about her piece on Gonzaga's club's response to President-elect Donald Trump, and I also talked to Joey Thompson, the GSBA beat writer, to wrap it all up with what's going on with Laura Hemmingson. Stay tuned. everyone to Reporters Corner, the Bulletin's news podcast. I'm the Bulletin's digital media editor, Josh Horton, and your host. I'm here to start the podcast with Andy Bueller, the Bulletin's editor-in-chief. We're going to go over five things you've missed since the Reporters Corner last recorded, which, you know, I admit is uh, it's been a long time, and there's been a lot of things that's happened. So we've got five things that you've missed. We're going to start out with some of the demonstrations that have been going around campus, and Andy was one of, the, you know, the reporters that spearheaded this process of reporting on these on these events that have happened. So Andy, can you kind of speak to what it was like covering these demonstrations and what what kind of some of the things you observed from Gonzaga demonstrations? Yeah, just a little background. On a Thursday night, uh, last Thursday night, Dr. Patrick McCormick in the Religious Studies Department sent out an email that was reminiscent of one of the, like, forward these on to 10 of your friends or, like, you'll die in your sleep emails, <laughs> like the chain emails. But it, but it, it obviously had... Uh, a different tone in, in the wake of the election results, it, and it said um, it invited everyone to join him in a protest uh, that Friday uh, at noon in front of the St. Ignatius statue in front, right in front of College Hall, and then it invited it to invited the recipient to forward the email on to 12 people they know, and so as chain mail uh, often works, it, it forwarded and forwarded and forwarded, and some 200 people showed up at, at noon the next day for a peaceful demonstration that was uh, faculty-led, but it was also promoted by GSBA uh, President Caleb Dawson, who was there, and, and there, there was a sizable group of, of GSBA representatives there, along with uh, a lot of other students, and uh, I believe a professor and a couple of uh, Whitworth students were there as well. And that, I thought that was kind of interesting, because a lot of times um, on Gonzaga, there's not a lot of demonstrations, there's not a lot of uproar of you know social justice um, issues or problems and you know this was kind of something different it doesn't really fit in with you know some of the the past um, reactions to to events Um, but obviously something as big as the election I think elicited some response and you know Dr. McCormick sending out that email kind of sparked all of that what what, you were at the you were at the um, the demonstration what did you kind of see from the people there what were some of the things that were happening, what were they doing? Well, yeah, and just to touch on your first point, I was surprised that it took as long as Friday after after the results came. I thought there would be some immediate reaction, as we saw at, at different campuses, like U of, University of Oregon's campus, uh, Oklahoma, just as two examples uh, of the many college campuses that kind of erupted in protests uh, after uh, Donald Trump was that became the president-elect. And so I was surprised that it took that long, but the manner in which it was, uh, in which it was organized and how it was seen out, and this is speaking to all three demonstrations uh, last Friday, it didn't surprise me at all. And it, it, I thought it was actually really, I was very impressed at how peaceful they were, how well attended they were, and particularly speaking to uh, Dr. McCormick's protest, it, it served as 
kind of half a prayer, um, kind of like a vigil, which the, the, the one that night that was student-led was actually titled a vigil, but the, the one at noon, I mean, they were like, they were singing songs, um, they were uh, chanting kind of from like a, uh, starting in a quiet voice saying like, welcome, not walls, um, which were, which was adorned on some of the signs at the protest, um, but kind of ascending to like a crescendo of a decently loud chant. And then uh, it was kind of intermixed with, and all, all led by McCormick, um, intermixed with different groups that he would essentially shout out to say that they're safe on campus. Um, and a lot of those groups are the ones that uh, may potentially feel unsafe uh, based on the president-elect. Yeah, of course. Moving on to number two, we got Josh Perkins, who was uh, charged with a DUI-related DUI charge. Um, he was at 4 a.m. after the craziness of the Kennel team scrimmage. He uh, he was parked inside of his car on um, the intersection of Sharp and was Sharp and Ruby. It was around there. I think it was right near the corner uh, of Sharp and Ruby, but on Sharp. Uh, yeah, the uh, Washington State Patrol, since division is a highway, um, they were actually the, the responders to the call, and they were called by campus security who discovered a running car with uh, a uh, driver uh, slumped over. It was a running parked car, I should say. That's that's a really important uh, description that w that wasn't initially uh, like the wordage was was rather vague in the initial reports. Uh, when we received. The, the police documents, they, it detailed the officer's uh, account of going up to the car, seeing that it was on, seeing that there was uh, a uh, male in the driver's seat that was slumped over and his phone was on in his pocket. And upon um, going around the car with flashlights, he awoke. Uh, this is all according to the police report. And as the officer tried to open the door, the uh, driver of the car uh, went to put the car in reverse as if to drive away or try to get away, uh, at which the officer uh, opened the door and, and quickly quelled that. And after after many pleas from his male was obviously later identified as, as Josh Perkins, the point guard on the basketball team, a redshirt sophomore. He was uh, he pleaded a, a few times to just uh, that the officers would just let him go upstairs, assuming he lives in, in the Kennedy apartments, um, is, is what that's referring to. And then uh, he willingly took a field sobriety test, where and uh, which led to him the, the charges. I think one of the biggest responses from Perkins's um, DUI-related charge is that a lot of people wondered how many games he was going to be suspended because this is kind of an unprecedented problem for Markview and the Bulldogs. They had um, Josh Heifel and Theo Davis infamously being arrested near Cheney for um, drug-related charges, and obviously those are, I guess, more major than what Perkins was was being um, being charged with. But at the same time, there wasn't a whole lot of things that compare Perkins's situation to other than Heifelt and Davis. So a lot of people wondered, you know, what would his suspension be very severe? But it ended up being two games, um, which I think... Two meaningless games, too. It yeah. was the exhibition game and the season opener against Utah Valley, which were both blowouts. Yeah, so only two games at the very start of the season when... You know, teams are still trying to get a feel for, you know, how they're going to play with each other. And the games aren't quite as meaningful as, you know, conference games in the, in the thick of conference play. So 
that was one thing that elicited a lot of student response. And I think a lot of people were almost a little underwhelmed with the suspension. What did you kind of hear from from the student body and some of the people surrounding the program that follow it closely? Yeah, some different uh, students I talked to uh, were a little bit surprised. It was two games. Um, I talked to a couple members of the, of the media as well who were not surprised just based on the fact that it was uh, a misdemeanor charge instead of a potential felony, which a DUI very well can be. Um, but yeah, the two games, uh, it personally surprised me, but that being said, I didn't have a precedent really. Uh, you know, there's no precedent within this program. Coach Few is obviously, he was very uh, forward coming with when he eventually spoke on it about how it would be a learning experience um, and that they weren't taking it lightly. Perkins, when he was suspended, uh, he was practiced. I, I was told he, he practiced throughout the whole thing, but he, he practiced with essentially the scout team or the, the non-starting team when they split up um, and really kind of accepted that role. And, and he's come back now in the second game of the season against San Diego State. Uh, he was one of the first subs off the bench, although he didn't start. And, and I, that, that remains to be seen whether he'll answer the starting lineup. I think it's, it's it pretty hard to argue against the fact that he'll, he'll, see, um, he'll see a lot of minutes. Um, Most definitely. Yeah. So, so as, far as, uh, as far as the punishment – it's hard to um, it's hard not to look at it and say that it set him back just based on the depth at guard. Uh, that being said, just because it was two games, uh, it could have been much worse. And that's definitely a topic that we'll most likely tackle on the Bulletin Sports Podcast. Zags on three, shameless plug. Moving on to number three, housing and residence life had a bit of a problem um, to figure out this semester. A lot of RAs resigned, didn't want to do the job anymore. Andy, can I speak to... Uh, the reporting on that story and you know what kind of went down with uh you know some of the problems within the residence life yeah it was initially reported as um uh, by our, our our news editor jared brown uh who spent a lot of time and, and i know had some difficulty getting in contact with uh, you know, di- different members of housing or uh ras themselves um and and, and really kind of getting to the bottom of it but there were a um, a slew of, of RA either resignations or um, uh, punishments that led to RAs being dismissed from their duties, um, and this is uh, relatively unprecedented. Uh, all those positions, by the time we reported on it, were filled, and essentially, essentially RAs come uh, about a month early and go through like a ringer of uh, trainings, and it's during the summer, so there's no classes. And these RAs, the replacements, have had like only a matter of days like with their classes to um, essentially be acquainted. And so really the, the angle Jared took and uh, the, the biggest effect that it had was, okay, so you know, your freshman year you is the year that you really rely on RAs the most, um, whether it be to help you with something as uh, remedial as uh, how to do your wash or whether it be like re- registration, you know, tips on, you know, different things around campus, what's going on. Um, and so the freshman RA or the freshman residents of Catherine Monica, which was one of the dorms that the RAs, uh, uh, stepped down. Some of them were pretty distraught, uh, immediately after, um, which speaks to the kind of the relationship that was built there. Uh, and then if you look at like Kennedy Apartments, which is uh, largely sophomores, juniors, and seniors, uh, a lot more independent, a lot more isolated. Maybe the residents didn't see uh, the direct effect as much as they would have in 
one of the freshman-only dorms. Joey, can you you live in Kennedy, right? I do, and I also lived in CM my freshman year. Can you speak to either of those? Yeah, um, my RA is her name's Ellie. She's really great, but I mean, in terms of outreach, it's a lot different. Your relationship with your RA is a sophomore as opposed to a freshman. Um, I mean, they do still check up on you, and they're all like a constant source of you know if you need someone to talk to. But uh, my RA my freshman year was very hands-on. We had a lot of hall meetings. Um, was always keeping his door open and that kind of stuff. Um, and as opposed to this year where, I mean, I don't think the need is there as much. If I didn't have an RA this semester, I don't know really how that would change much. Um, I enjoy my RA. She's great. But at the same time, the, the things that they provide aren't as inherently necessary as they were your freshman year. Yeah, and just just going off of Jared's lead to his story, there are only 74 RAs on campus, and I say only because that makes up like about 0.2 of the Gonzaga student population. That kind of just speaks to the importance of RAs on campus, and I think that that was um, a really a kind of a driving point of the story was like, it was, it was really felt when that specific number of RAs weren't able to uh, or were dismissed from their duties or stepped down, um, especially in the freshman dorms. Uh, but that being said, since then, all the positions have been filled. And so I'm sure that that's kind of like a – I'm sure that's going to be like a, a you know a potential crisis situation going forward that housing is going to use um, in, in their training. And now they were able to think on their feet and kind of come up with a, uh, an RA training light so to say. It's kind of like a PR crisis plan. They kind of have a blueprint for, you know, future incidences where, you know, a perfect storm happens, a bunch of RAs either quit or relieved of their duties, and they need to fill those spots immediately. Because, you know, there are, a lot of people do rely on RAs for guidance, some more than others, but uh, obviously, you know, they, they play a significant role. And um, it was interesting that that kind of phenomenon happened, um, you know, all, a bunch of RAs, you know, relieving of their, getting relieved of their duties or, um, quitting at the same time yeah and and the like the why was never really like you always look for a why and it seemed like they were all either like unrelated or isolated Mm -hmm. um and it it just happened to i'll steal your words it was kind of a perfect storm uh so it, it it's not like there was some just like you know some failure in training or uh a bunch of ras just like uh you know, just like banding together and like breaking all the rules. Um, it, it seemed like they were all fairly unrelated and they were in different dorms too. So chances of that happening again are pretty slim, but uh, the house it could be prepared, I guess. It could. So, yeah. yeah. And they will be prepared. Obviously you don't want anything to that like that to happen, but, um, there is a silver lining, I guess you could take from that. Number four, we're moving on fish bowls. Rincon Tapatio. Oh, yeah. Okay, can I yeah, just go ahead. admit to the fact that I have actually never had a fishbowl before? Interesting. Coming off of never having a fishbowl in my life, um, Jared Brown also reported on this story, um, and it's one that is very – it's not essentially it, – it's not the most nitty-gritty news. Um, no. It's not going to make or break anyone, but based on the reaction on social media, you might think otherwise. Um <laughs> Because Our Facebook page was popping. People, people really care about fish bowls. It's like, it's like the kennel, like, like ticket distribution, tenting, fish bowls. <laughs> it's like all in the same conversation. And it's not like they went away either. They just have less alcohol in them, um, and they're yeah. and they're not as big. Okay. So. 
I'll give the rundown. So <laughs> Rincon Tapatio, um, a popular Mexican restaurant popular on Mexican, Hamilton, yeah, on, on Hamilton, Hamilton Street, right or, across the street from the park. Super close. A lot of people like its convenience and its food, and obviously the fish bowls. Uh, so there were representatives from the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board uh, that visited the restaurant uh, undercover to see if a fake ID would uh, would be caught by servers. Um, and Rincon passed the test, but red flags when the liquor board uh, red flags flew when the liquor board officials saw uh, <laughs> some of the patrons order fish bowls, which I didn't know this, but the, the old fish bowls had thirteen shots. Yeah. That, so they had multiple straws. Yeah, if you didn't share it, you were gonna have a bad night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they've downsized to six shots now, and the basically it doesn't really change much besides the fact that like you can order a per, like they have to be personal. Fi- well, they don't have to be personal fish bowls. I don't believe. No. But you aren't. You can't put. You can't get a fishbowl for yourself that's meant for a group of people that has thirteen shots in it. So that's what it changes. I know a lot of my friends personally were outraged by this for some odd reason. I don't understand quite why it was a big deal. I don't understand why it's probably the most popular article on our site right now, as of this month. But it is. It is a big deal, and I guess people like Gonzaga care about it. So um, we figured we'd throw out the top five things you missed just because. Now, the viewership indicates that that is one of the top five things you probably care about. Yeah, absolutely. And just to add one of the things in Jared's story, it says servers frequently have to turn away patrons who are already too drunk because it's a liability. And the restaurant has also had problems with customers vomiting in the bathroom and losing their balance in the restaurant. So that's just some direct experience with uh, <laughs> with uh, patrons who are imbibing in the uh, former 13-shot fish bowls. <laughs> All right. On a more serious note, we'll move on to number five. Um, Alan West, he's a uh, very, uh, in, in a way, controversial figure that... He's a Bronze Star recipient, an Iraq war vet, yeah. and a former Florida congressman, uh, uh, a Republican uh, Florida congressman who uh, gave the speech titled uh, The Truth About Radical Islamic Terrorism. Uh, he gave it in the Wolf Auditorium in Junt. Uh, in uh, Jepson. Jepson, sorry, not John. Um, the college Republicans, uh, the GU college Republicans brought him in, um, which some may argue is a uh, fairly less controversial figure, or at least oh, elicited a, a lot a lot less feedback, uh, both negative and positive, from the uh, person, the speaker that the college Republicans brought last year, Dinesh D'Souza. And so Alan West spoke, uh, that was on Thursday, uh, November 3rd, and uh, both the student uh, student section and then the uh, community member section were nearly filled within five minutes of the doors opening. And uh, there was a, a UW, UW medical students there that are on Gonzaga's campus. There was a, a really a wide range of, of people. And a uh, quote here says, um, from West, said, this is absolutely, or this is what should happen on a college campus. Uh, there should not be safe spaces. And he spoke on, uh, he touched from his experience in uh, the military. Again, reported by Jared Brown. Why, why isn't Jared sitting here in my place? I'm just essentially <laughs> regurgitating, like, re- information reported. But it was a big deal on campus. Yeah. Um, it was ob- it obviously filled up really quickly. Um, it was no, there was no Hemington Ballroom max capacity uh, drama or anything. But uh, particularly right before the election, I uh, thought it was timely. Um, and definitely, I mean, it's the second thing that 
the second speaker that college Republicans have brought to campus within the last like seven to eight months. And I think that just goes to show at, at, at how much they're kind of striving to get that conservative voice uh, onto a campus that many in the college Republicans have been very outspoken uh, that, that this campus needs the, uh, those voices. Yeah, most definitely. And last year we saw the whole saga with Dinesh Souza, and you reported on that extensively. It's Alan West coming to campus just did not elicit the same type of response. And, and I think that was very much the plan. Um, I, I don't think that either party wanted that. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the college Republicans, uh, uh, there was some sort of redeeming qualities of, of all that free press last year uh, surrounding D'Souza. Um, at the expense, of course, of the university. Uh, I mean, the university really got dragged um, big time uh, nationally. And so this one was a lot quieter uh, as far as noise goes. Most definitely, um, yeah. But, but by, by all accounts, it, it sounded like uh, he was a, you know, well-articulated and, and that his speech was very well-received. Of course, yeah. Uh, it, not necessarily in response to that, but... Uh, we, as we touched on the protests, the day before the Friday protest that was put on by the religious studies uh, professor, Dr. Patrick McCormick, the bulletin received a letter to the editor in wake of the election by Dr. John Sheevland, an associate professor of religious studies, and it was titled An Open Letter to Muslim Students of Gonzaga University. Um, and this was specifically cited as in wake of the election results, but it's hard, and, and, and here, I'll I'll, I'll read a, I'll read a, a uh, blurb from it. It's, he says, I apologize to all of our Muslim students, to each one of you, for the fact that you remain misunderstood, unseen, stigmatized, and irrationally feared by some in our society and even our campus. I am sorry. I am sorry that Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, a guest speaker on our campus last week, appears unwilling to recognize Muslims and the traditions of Islam apart from his quite specific security concerns pertaining to violent political extremism. So... This is something that is, uh, was, was built upon two events happening on our campus, and this was a response from a religious studies uh, professor who was I mean, the religious studies department. Is, <laughs> almost every one of them wrote, it wrote either wrote to us yeah. or were very active in, these, uh, in, in Dr. McCormick's protest, mm -hmm. uh, also in the student vigil. Uh, that night. And if I can speak to Dr. Shevlin, I took his religion and violence online class, which a lot of people have spoken very highly of, and the guy is very knowledgeable on you know many different religions and how they interact with each other and how they have historically interacted with each other. And I think um, after reading his letter, it's just like he is a very trusted voice when it comes to um, being knowledgeable on you know what kind of how how different religions interact. And his class is fascinating. If anyone is still having to take a religion three hundred level class, I definitely recommend it. Shameless plug for Dr. Shevlin. No shame in your plug. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I, his letter to the editor kind of spoke to a lot of the things that he taught in the class, and I thought you know it was, it was very interesting, and it, it kind of just was a great precursor to a lot of the events that happened on campus the next day, with a lot of the demonstrations, the vigils, and it was just a it was it was a very well written letter that that served a, a good purpose to um, you know what what the religious studies department was obviously trying to portray through all the demonstrations that. It organized with Dr. McCormick and, you know, its involvement in the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, if I may, that that, that concludes our, our five things. They were supposed to be pretty quick hitters, but it, it, so it turns uh, so it turns out that since they were big deals on campus, we we have uh, 
no problem talking about them and, and feel as though their importance uh, dictates how, how long we spend on each one of them. Yeah, of course. And if you want to read some of the pieces that we mentioned, I'll link it in the bio and um, you can you can check those out. I definitely recommend it on GonzagaBulletin.com as well as checking out some of our Twitter coverage, especially of the protests, our news editor, Jared Brown. His Twitter handle is, I believe, uh, J-Rod, J-A-Y-R-O-D underscore Brown. And he's got some great uh, videos from the protests um, and responses from some of the people at, at the protests. So I definitely recommend checking those out as well. All right, so Joey's up next. And while Joey's... Uh, I think Eden's up next. Eden's it. up next? Okay, well, while Eden's, up ne- while Eden's going, I'm going to be dishing... Uh, or I'm going to be deleting junk mail out of my inbox. So carry on. Wow. Yeah. Good luck with that. Thank you. I appreciate it. So. Well, up next, we got uh, Eden Lassie talking about clubs at Gonzaga and their response to President-elect Donald Trump. Stay tuned. Next up on Reporter's Corner, we got Eden Lassie. She did a great piece on um, what eight clubs at Gonzaga felt about President-elect Donald Trump. And his uh, his kind of surprising win in the presidential election um, last Tuesday. So, yeah, she caught up with eight clubs and got their initial reactions. What obviously the two the two clubs that come to mind are Young Debs and College Republicans. What did they? What was their response to Donald Trump being elected president? I mean, like you said, it was surprising. So they're both kind of shocked. Obviously, College Republicans was shocked in a positive way, and Young Debs was shocked in a negative way. Um, the College Republicans. They kind of spoke to some of the things they liked about Donald Trump, about, you know, thinking that he was going to do better with money, thinking he was going to help our immigration policies, Um, whereas the other clubs I talked to were very, very upset about his election. Um, But Young Dems, they probably reacted the second most positively, I would say, just kind of trying to tell people that that we need to rally together and support him as our president now, and if you have a problem with his election, then now's the time to start getting active within the Democratic Party and start thinking about midterm elections in two years. How, how soon after the election did you talk to the, these clubs? Um, I talked to started talking to people the Thursday after the election, so it was pretty fresh, just a couple days. Yeah, yeah. What, what kind of, uh, did, you, did you kind of seem like they were disappointed in, in Young Dems of Obviously, it's so fresh at that point. Did you, did you kind of seem like they were? Did did it seem like to you that they're disappointed in, you know, Donald Trump being elected? And did they kind of have that you know tone in their voice, that inflection? Yeah, they were definitely disappointed. Um, more than anything, they were shocked. I think just because it was so fresh, they were still trying to process it because all the polls, all the predictions had uh, Hillary Clinton winning pretty easily. So I think, you know, they were still in the processing phase where it was not like they were. I mean, they were upset, but they hadn't really got into that stage yet. They were still trying to figure out what had happened. And obviously, with talking to eight different clubs, it expands, you know, beyond the the two the two clubs that represent the two major political parties in this country. What were some of the reactions from some of those clubs that you talked to, and what was kind of the most surprising out of the the other six clubs, other than Young Debs and College Republicans? Among all the clubs I talked to, everybody except College Republicans was pretty upset. They had some pretty legitimate concerns and fears. So that's clubs like La Raza Latina, the Black Student Union, um, and the Environmental Club. The one that kind of struck me um, as strange and kind of caught me off guard was the Pro-Life Club, um, because generally you associate the pro-life movement with the Republican Party. And so they were 
kind of optimistic about the idea of being able to enact more pro-life laws, given that not only was the president Republican, but the House and the Senate had gone red. Um, but they felt that Donald Trump didn't really represent their cause very well, because one of the things they told me was that pro-life isn't necessarily just about being anti-abortion. It's also about respecting life in all forms at all times. So that means respecting people, whether they're black or whether they're Muslim or whether they're gay or straight or whatever it may be. Um, and obviously with a lot of things that Donald Trump has said and done, they didn't feel that he respected people and respected life. So I thought that was interesting because I had never looked at it that way and that gave me kind of a new understanding of their organization. Of course. And, you know, with all the turmoil and, you know, the the outrage and, you know, at, at, at some points, obviously, uh, jubilation, there there are some interesting perspectives that come out. Um, you know, there's a lot of outspoken people at this time, um, every presidential election. So it's always good to, to, you know, to see different sides of sides of the spectrum and, you know, get that different perspective. What, what, what else from talking to these clubs that, that kind of struck you um, as interesting or, you know, as, as a very, you know, prominent theme that came out within what each club? I mean, every club, even the college Republicans who was happy, they all talked about kind of coming together um, as a country and kind of rallying at this point. College Republicans were a little different because they wanted to come together and rally around Donald Trump. Um, whereas the other clubs kind of talked about coming together in solidarity, coming together and supporting other people who are feeling afraid, who are, you know, scared for their lives or for their basic human rights and kind of showing people that you support them. Um, so those clubs, they encourage protests, they encourage people to speak up and say what's on their mind and kind of show those marginalized groups that, you know, if you are upset, that you're there for them. So that was one of the main themes that I saw. Well, Eden's piece is on uh, GonzagaBulletin.com, and it's on newsstands um, today, which uh, we're recording this podcast on November 17, 2016. So pick up a copy of the Bulletin or check out our piece at GonzagaBulletin.com. Eden, thanks for coming on. Appreciate yeah, it. thanks so much for having me. And up next, we got Joey Thompson. He's the Bulletin's GSBA beat writer, and he's making his first appearance on Reporter's Corner and lo a long time coming, we've been wanting to talk about GSBA for a while. And uh, Joey is the guy to talk to when it comes to GSBA. So I have him on now. How are you doing, Joey? I'm good. How are you? Very, uh, very honored to be here. I'm uh, happy to have you on. So the big thing with GSBA this semester has been finding what finding finding out what to do with the space in Lower Hemmingson and making that more of a student lounge and a, a place that kind of replicates the the feel of Lower Crosby which a lot of students really liked and um, loved to lounge in. And what, what, what kind of uh, steps have GSBA taken since you've taken on the beat at the start of the semester to now, and where do you think this project is going in the future? Uh, well, basically where it started was um, there's a lot of space under Hemmingson on the bottom floor that's being used right now for storage. Um, and the GSBA especially Caleb Dawson, have wanted to take that space and turn it into a student lounge. Because when the Hemmingson was first unveiled, uh, a lot of students didn't feel very comfortable in the Hemmingson because it's very modern. Um, the the furniture is not really meant to be comfortable. Um, I mean, as comfortable as the Crosby furniture. Um, so basically a place where students, maybe the music's not so loud, a place where students can hang out and study um, as opposed to maybe like socialize where you would think of Hemmingson. So basically what they did is for the, you know, the entire duration of the semester, they have been tabling with students, asking them what they want in a student lounge. 
um, and taking that information and talking with architect Dan Griffin and interior designer Katie Harmon um, and Chuck Falkenberry, the director of the Hemmingson Center, about what they can do to create a student lounge in that unused storage space. Um, so they've, they've tabled a lot. Um, as of right now, they have uh, the design done, uh, the floor plan done. They've picked out uh, the furniture that they'd like to see. And all of this has been going on. Um, Caleb Dawson and Director of Communications Rachel Noyes from the GSBA have been meeting with Chuck Falkenberry, other Hemmingson um, people, and the architect Dan Griffin and Katie Harmon, um, and some just regular students to see what they think on a, every Thursday for about four or five Thursdays. And basically at this point, um, they've made the decisions with student feedback what they want to do, and they are waiting for budgets and for donors um, to get that project rolling. You mentioned the storage space that it keeps on coming up in all of your GSBA recaps. You can read at GonzagaBolton.com. Um, Joey has them every Monday. But you mentioned the storage space that they want to essentially transform into a student lounge. What are they going to do with the stuff that is stored already in that storage space? Have they answered that question yet? I don't know if they've necessarily answered that direct question, um, but I don't think the storage space is being really utilized. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a lot being stored, um, and there are warehouses uh, around campus. I live uh, in the Kennedy Apartments, and right across my window, there's a large warehouse full of Gonzaga furniture, and I, I believe that that's really all that's being stored. So I don't think the space is really necessary for um, what they have it as right now. Gotcha, gotcha. Where, when do you kind of see this project being completed? When When is GSBA kind of put their... Um, you know, end date for when they want to have this project completed. Uh, uh, during a couple GSBA meetings, Caleb Dawson has said he'd really love to see it finished by gel weekend um, towards the end of the next semester. Um, and the school, Chuck Falkenberry just kind of told me, well, they want to see it done by the end of the year so that seniors who kind of started with Crosby can see where it is now and sort of that feel, where that feel is on campus. Uh, construction is going to take roughly 12 weeks. Um, they obviously haven't started construction yet, and they will not be able to do so until they can lock down a donor um, once they finish this budget. I know from your last GSBA uh, Senate meeting recap that Judy Biggs Garbuyo, who is the Vice President for Student Development, I have that yes. title correct? Okay, perfect. Well, she came to the last GSBA Senate meeting and talked at, she talked on a myriad subjects at last, uh, last meeting. Uh, what, what kind of are some of the things that she addressed and what were kind of the reactions from some of the GSEA senators and, and representatives? Yeah, she well, she took some time out, came to the meeting, and, and basically just took questions from all the senators. Um, and topics ranged from alcohol amnesty um, with campus security to uh, where are we going to find more green space on campus. Um, alcohol amnesty was, uh, was a big topic. There were a lot of questions directed to her about that. And basically her response was... Um, Nothing about Gonzaga's policy is going to change in terms of they're not going to say you can call campus police and you're not going to get in any trouble. Um, but they have said, well, it's not in the policy, um, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So basically, um, if you're a student in a tough situation and maybe you, know, you haven't been documented or have had issues in the past, something like that was something she referred to, you're not going to get um, in a lot of trouble with this. So basically, her answer was, uh, we're not going to change our policy to, on alcohol amnesty, which is basically a lack thereof policy. Um, but 
don't assume that you're going to get in trouble um, if you call Campo and you need help. Uh, she also talked about um, dormitories. Uh, one senator asked about um, because classes are getting bigger and we're running out of space to house all these underclassmen, would you consider letting sophomores live off campus? And she quickly quelled that notion saying, no, we are going to stick with our, our two-year plan. And basically saying that that, that, that burden is going to fall on upperclassmen because um, their spots on campus are going to get smaller and smaller. Uh, she referenced Coughlin uh, Dormitory or Hall and saying that it was actually built so that two wings could be built um, on both sides of the building, which would, I think, almost double the occupancy, if not double the occupancy of the dorm. Um, but when asked when you know students could see that, she said definitely at least five years before we see that, just because of how much construction is going on on campus and how much that all costs. Um, another thing she talked about was green space on campus. Um, a lot of people are upset about Jump Lawn being turned into parking spaces. Um, and I think a lot of the senators were uh, felt a lot better after hearing her answer that basically once the uh, construction all on campus, uh, the Jesuit House and the um, Art Center, once those things finish up, we're going to see Jump Lawn go back to being Jump Lawn um, and getting that green space back on campus. Um, other things she talked about were um, sanctuary spaces on campus. I think this was probably the really the biggest thing she talked about in the wake of the Donald Trump becoming the president-elect. Uh, a lot of universities around the campus are creating these things called sanctuary spaces where undocumented students um, will not be uh, in risk of being deported or basically what happened is the universities won't comply um, with the uh, immigration services and immigration agency. And so they will not get the names of undocumented students on these campuses. And they basically asked Judy uh, whether or not Gonzaga is going to look into that. And she said it's definitely something that they've started talking about um, ever since the election and seeing other schools doing it. I talked with Caleb Dawson, GSBA president, after the meeting. And he told me that he was very impressed by Judy because, you know, he brought up sanctuary spaces to her um, one morning. And then earlier that or later that day, she had already talked to trustees, you know, what are we going to do about sanctuary spaces on campus? So it's definitely something that we could see happen. Um, but she hasn't made a statement whether or not we're really going to see that in the future. And that seemed like to me to be one of your most eventful Senate recaps. Just Very much so. You know, with Judy Bates-Garbrio coming... Um, there is a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, She's got a lot of stuff to introduce, no, step, yeah. no doubt. Um, As someone who has basically her hands in everything that's going on on campus. <laughs> yes, very true. Where is GSBA with filling all of their uh, senator spots and student government spots? Because that was a problem for them it after the fall been, elections. It, it has been. Um, a quick fact about the fall elections. Uh, the freshman class, um, which is really where you get the majority of new members and the majority of uh, voting was from the freshman class, um, the candidates that were running for freshman positions actually uh, made so many campaign infractions that the GSBA, uh, for the first time in, I think, recent memory or possibly ever, made money um, off of the elections because they were the freshmen were fined so heavily that the uh, 
money actually offset and the GSBA saw profit. What goes into a campaign in Fraction, exactly? Um, putting up too many posters. Putting posters. There's in, a limit to how many posters yes, you can put there up? there is. Oh, um, my God. A, putting posters where you're not allowed to, maybe covering a window or, or something like that, or covering a poster that's already there. It may be an inappropriate poster, mm. um, language they don't see as appropriate. Um, yeah, basically that. Uh, maybe using too much money or the money that they give you um, for inappropriate things. Interesting. Yes. Very, so, very interesting. But but back to what you asked about um, filling these positions. They have had a lot of issues um, filling some positions. Right now, it's no longer election-based. They've appointed several senators um, just by interviews and applications. Um, they still have a few to be filled. I think they're still looking for some junior senators and a junior class vice president. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, but there's something about the junior class. They do not really seem to want to get involved with the GSBA, and they have still they are advertising um, as much as they can to fill those positions, but no, not much yet. What are kind of the ramifications that come into play if those spots go unfilled? Well, I think you just see that the junior class uh, is will be underrepresented um, because they don't have those voices in there. Um, and in terms of a Senate, conversation they have to have i believe 15 members at a meeting in order to hold quorum so they can actually have the meeting um and early early in the year uh, before the elections took place there actually weren't enough senators to do that um and so yeah i guess now you're looking at you know can they get they're at that number now but they'd love to have a full senate um which at this point looks uh, almost unlikely and there's your GSBA recap from Joey Thompson. Um, follow him on Twitter at Joey J Tomp. That's uh, Tomp T H O M P. Um, he's a pretty good follow for GSBA updates, I would say. I try. To find some of the stories referenced in this podcast, as well as check out some of the Bulletin's other digital content, go to GonzagaBulletin.com and find us on Twitter at, at @GonzagaBulletin. Thanks again to Andy Bueller, Eden Lossie, and Joey Thompson for coming on this week's edition of Reporter's Corner. And as always, thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Josh Horton.